Hello and welcome to MedTalk, a medical revision podcast designed for medical students to help with your studies and beyond. My name is Melissa and I'm a third year medical student. Joining us today is Dr. Katie Perham, an emergency department registrar who has over eight years experience working in emergency departments. Katie, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mel. On today's episode, we are going to discuss a commonly encountered topic in medical school, myocardial infarction. So hopefully the principles we cover today will assist in revision for your exams, as well as in your future placements in the emergency department. Today we are going to start by discussing some of the important foundational knowledge for MI, such as classification, etiology and risk factors. Then we will have a look at a case example so we can apply our knowledge in the context of history, examination, investigations and management. Myocardial infarction can be defined as an acute myocardial ischemia leading to myocardial injury and cell death. An MI is actually a type of acute coronary syndrome, which includes both MI and unstable angina. Katie, could you tell us what is the difference between an MI and unstable angina? So they're both the result of occlusion of a coronary artery, but an MI occurs when the ischemia continues for long enough to cause myocardial cell death. So the only way to really tell the difference is with a troponin or another cardiac biomarker. The history is what should make you suspicious for unstable angina, and if they have a history and symptoms consistent with cardiac ischemia and a positive troponin, then it's an MI. The high sensitivity troponins we have now are making it even easier to diagnose MI earlier and it's likely that many of the patients who were previously diagnosed with unstable angina are now being diagnosed as a non-STEMI. MI can further be classified into two types, which is STEMI and non-STEMI. So a STEMI refers to myocardial infarction where the SD segment is elevated on ECG, uh, whereas the non-STEMI is a myocardial infarction where the SD segment is not elevated. So apart from these ECG changes, is there any other way that you differentiate between the two? <laughs> no, there isn't any way. It's written into the diagnosis. Um, some patients with a STEMI will look grey and diaphoretic and awful, and some will just have a vague presenting complaint like fatigue or nausea. I've had a couple of STEMIs who've just had burping as their presenting complaint. The troponin won't necessarily be higher, and even so, we would hope that the diagnosis of STEMI is made before the TROP comes back 45 minutes later. So now moving to epidemiology. So according to the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, coronary heart disease is the leading single cause of disease burden and death in Australia. The prevalence of coronary heart disease increases with age, affecting around one in six adults aged 75 and over. In 2016, coronary heart disease represented 12% of all deaths and 43% of cardiovascular deaths. Heart attack accounted for more than 40% of these coronary heart disease deaths. And the rates of acute coronary events are seen as twice as common in men than in women. So Katie, how common is MI in the ED and have you noticed a typical age and gender for these patients? Yeah, so chest pain is our bread and butter. It's hard to quantify the incidence of presentations in which we'd be considering ACS. Obviously, there are other symptoms that make us think suspiciously about that diagnosis that aren't necessarily chest pain, like shortness of breath or epigastric pain. But I think the presentations of chest pain in our ED would probably be about 10% and there would probably be about 3 to 4% of these people that go on to have a diagnosis of MI. I agree with you, men die from MI in Australia twice as much as women and despite the rate of deaths falling overall over time due to a combination of factors like the advent of PCI, anticoagulants and overall better primary care, the gender gap stays pretty consistent. We see a lot of non-STEMIs in patients over the age of 75, 
And the incidence of MI in over 85s is more than six times that of the 55 to 65 year age group. There's certainly a higher incidence of ACS in Aboriginal patients at a much younger age. And it's really important to consider the diagnosis in someone young if they present with ischemic sounding symptoms or any anginal equivalent. And the same goes for younger patients who use stimulants, so meth, which is of course exceedingly common in our departments here in WA, and cocaine, which can both cause ACS, coronary artery spasm and dissection. So moving on to the etiology and pathophysiology, so the majority of acute coronary syndromes are caused by thrombotic events involving unstable plaque formation and subsequent rupture. The ruptured plaques can cause partial or complete coronary artery occlusion. A partial occlusion will cause decreased myocardial blood flow, a supply-demand supply mismatch, myocardial ischemia, and this usually manifests as unstable angina or a non-STEMI. A STEMI, on the other hand, is usually caused by a complete occlusion of a coronary artery, which typically affects the full thickness of the myocardium. More rarely, acute coronary syndrome may also be caused by emboli, coronary spasm, or vasculitis. So Katie, in your experience, is this true that most MIs coming in are caused by thrombotic events? I would say that true ACS is almost always caused by the pathology you mentioned. We see a lot of so-called type 2 MIs in the ED, which is an imbalance between myocardial oxygen supply and demand due to our patient caseload. There's obviously a lot of sepsis, bleeding and other conditions which we see causing myocardial ischemia. And the vast majority of these patients will still have some sort of underlying coronary artery disease. As I mentioned, coronary artery spasm is something that we see in younger patients with the increasing prevalence of stimulant drug use. Every now and then we get a spontaneous coronary artery dissection, but that's quite rare. I work in a tertiary centre, so we also see a little bit of Takotsubo cardiomyopathy, which has ECG changes that look like a STEMI, but actually occurs in a structurally normal heart in the setting of a big stressor. But we obviously don't get to find out that that's what it is until the angiogram. The difficulty for us, I guess, is differentiating the other life threats that are really good at masquerading as an MI. So aortic dissection can have ECG changes and a troponin rise, and the same goes for PE, and both can present with central crushing chest pain. So it's really important to keep that in mind when you're assessing your patients. In terms of risk factors for myocardial infarction, these include older age, male gender, as we've discussed, history of angina or coronary artery disease, a family history of coronary artery disease, diabetes, hypertension, smoking, and high cholesterol. We'll have a bit more of a look at these risk factors when we go through our case history. We are now going to work through a case example to help us gain a better understanding of MI in practice. A 68-year-old man, Mr. Smith, is brought into the emergency department by ambulance. His wife called the ambulance after Mr. Smith complained of chest pain and looked pale and sweaty. So, before we go any further, we've got a patient with chest pain, your bread and butter. What is your approach and what's going through your head? <laughs> so as an ED doctor, my aim is always to exclude the life-threatening diagnoses. Of course, the top three here would be ACS, PE and aortic dissection. Now, this guy looks pale and sweaty, which is never a good omen. We know that ED doctor observed diaphoresis actually has a higher likelihood ratio than previous MI as a clinical predictor of ACS. The next thing that's going through my mind is the other diagnoses that can make people critically unwell. So cardiac causes like myocarditis, pericardial effusion, lung causes like pneumothorax or pneumonia, and GI causes like esophageal perforation, cholecystitis and pancreatitis. 
Once I'm happy that I've thought about these diagnoses, my next step is to think about the things that still require treatment in the ED. I'm a systems thinker, so I like to do this from the inside out, but you could just as easily apply a surgical sieve if, unlike me, you remember all of that. So from the inside, we have the heart, things like stable angina, pericarditis, aortic stenosis. And then following on from that, we have the aorta. So you think about aneurysm and vasculitis. Next to the aorta is the esophagus, where you can have reflux and spasm. And then outside of this, we have the lungs, where I'll be thinking of infection, malignancy. And then the pleura and chest wall, where you can have pleurisy, trauma, shingles, costochondritis, and other musculoskeletal pain. You can, of course, then have supratentorial causes of pain like anxiety, but it's not something that we should hinge on in the ED because it often leads to cognitive bias and misdiagnosis, so it should be a diagnosis of exclusion. So when I walk into the bay, I'm going to be looking at the patient from the end of the bed. Is he grey, sweaty, speaking in sentences or just words? What are his obs doing? Is he saturating poorly, which might make me think of LV failure or PE? Is he hypertensive, which makes me think of dissection? I'm going to look at his ECG at the bedside and then I'm going to be taking a focus history and examination based on trying to include or exclude those diagnoses that I just mentioned into my short list of differentials which will guide my next steps. You take a presenting complaint history from Mr Smith and he tells you that pain is in the middle of his chest, it's a dull pain that came on quite quickly and is radiating to his jaw. He feels a bit nauseous and lightheaded. He feels a little bit short of breath too but he's not sure if that's just because he's a bit nervous about the chest pain. What's your thought process now? Is MI your top differential um, or are there others that you're still thinking about close to the top? Yeah, I think this is a pretty good history for ACS. I'm obviously still going to be thinking about those other causes that we talked about, but I think in someone who presents like this and has ongoing pain, even if they have a normal ECG and negative troponins, they can still have an acute coronary syndrome in the form of unstable angina. So we can't just be discharging them in the setting of negative investigations. So how often would you see a typical presentation like this or like a good history like this? Um, you know, I've read that women, for example, often present atypically. Um, has this been your experience? Yeah, I actually don't like this word atypical. <laughs> atypical of what, you know? In conditions like ACS that have multiple clinical features, most people will have something unusual about their presentation and a textbook presentation pretty much only occurs in a textbook. I think the golden rule is probably to remember that atypical is actually typical. Up to a third of patients won't actually have any chest pain at all and they'll instead have shortness of breath, nausea, fatigue, epigastric pain like we talked about before. Some patients just have arm pain, some will have dizziness, sweat, some will have syncope. You know, there's risk factors for not having chest pain with ACS and they'd be elderly people, diabetic people of course, women, those people with heart failure. If you have a heart, a heart transplant, you can't feel your heart because it's denovated, so be very cautious in those people. Um, I think that elderly and diabetic patients with shortness of breath should definitely have an ECG within 10 minutes of arriving, just like chest pain patients. Things that would lower my suspicion for ACS include pleuritic chest pain, pain that's positional or a sharp or stabbing pain. Pain that's reducible on palpation has a negative likelihood ratio of 0.28 and people love to tout this as musculoskeletal chest pain but I would add a caveat to that and that if you push on your own ribs it's pretty uncomfortable. I think it's probably wise to say that if you can't diagnose someone with a cause for their chest pain definitively it's better to discharge them from the emergency department with chest pain of unknown cause because once you put a label on them like costochondritis or musculoskeletal chest pain it introduces significant cognitive bias for the next person when they present with the same pain. Hmm. 
The trouble with people, I think, who present without chest pain as their main complaint is that they have a longer delay, usually from symptom onset to getting to the ED, which means they have had more ischemia by the time we get to them. And even when they get to us, they often have a delay in diagnosis because their symptoms are vague. These factors are probably the reason they have at least double the in-hospital mortality to those patients who present with chest pain. Okay, so after we've done the history of presenting complaint, what other things would you be most interested to find out in your history? So I'm going to ask about the presenting complaint. What was the patient doing when the pain came on? How long ago did it start? Were they exerting themselves? Were they at rest? Did the pain wake them from sleep? Um, have they had any other episodes of the pain before this one? I find it useful to tell the patient when I'm talking about pain, I don't necessarily mean just pain. I mean any tightness or discomfort or a nagging feeling in the chest. Um, and my favorite question to clarify the nature of the pain is by asking the patient, if you could make me feel the same pain, how would you describe it? There's a few demonstrations of pain that patients do that are associated with an increased incidence of ACS. So if a patient clenches the fist to the center of their chest, that's called Levine's sign. That's actually quite indicative. Other signs are when a patient puts a flat hand over the center of their chest or when they draw their palms out laterally from the center of their chest. And either of those has a sensitivity of about 80% for detecting ACS. I'll then ask about radiation. It's classically taught that people with chest pain radiate to the left arm, but actually radiation to the both arms has a specificity of 96%, I think, and a likelihood ratio of 2.6 as a predictor of MI, much higher than left arm pain. And in fact, radiation to the right arm has a higher likelihood ratio than radiation to the left arm. I then like to ask about whether there are any exacerbating or relieving factors. This includes position, resting, was there any relief from any medications they've taken? The response to nitrates is actually a pretty unreliable test for ACS, actually, but I do want to know if they're pain-free and how to continue keeping them that way because ongoing pain means ongoing muscle damage, and that's a really important first step in managing the patient. I would add in here that you really shouldn't be using a pink lady to differentiate whether a patient has a GI source of their pain because about a third of patients with ACS will have a response to a pink lady. And the same goes for relationship to food. There's a bit of literature that suggests maybe 8% of MIs begin while eating and 20% of people will describe the pain as heartburn in the setting of MI. I anecdotally would say that every late presenter with MI I've had in the last few months has been because they thought it was just a bit of reflux and they thought it would go away. Um, in terms of other associated symptoms, nausea has a pretty high likelihood ratio for predicting ACS. And I'll also ask things like shortness of breath, um, and then other features that might point me away from the diagnosis. So I'll ask about cough, fever, recent other infective symptoms. I, of course, want to ask about risk factors. And we can ask about the classic risk factors of diabetes, family history and a first degree relative, especially what age that relative was at the time of their first angina or heart attack. And these two risk factors are probably the most predictive, but we also want to know about obesity, smoking, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, OSA and chronic renal disease. I really want to know about non-traditional risk factors, especially in young patients, not necessarily Mr. Smith, but, you know, these include pregnancy, HIV, cocaine and meth use, obviously, chronic steroid use. Having lupus actually puts up your risk by 50 times, according to the Framingham data. And then I'm going to ask them about their cardiac history. Have they ever had an MI? Do they have stents or a cabbage? Are they compliant with their medications? I would definitely take recent cardiac testing with a grain of salt though treadmill stress tests have a much lower sensitivity and specificity than people realize 
And up to two-thirds of MIs are caused by plaques with less than 50% stenosis. As you rightly said earlier, the plaque is unstable and it ruptures, so it doesn't actually matter how much stenosis there was before it ruptured, it's ruptured. The clot is going to form once that happens and include the vessel. So even a recent negative angiogram doesn't rule out ACS in the ED patient. So we've taken a detailed history. Um, would you expect any findings on examination if, if this patient is having an MI? And how much weight would you put on examination findings given his quite clear history? Yeah, so the examination for me is not going to diagnose ACS, but it is important to exclude other diagnoses. So I look for neurological deficits or a pulse deficit, the blood pressure or any aortic regurge murmur when I'm thinking about dissection and any inequality in air entry or unilateral chest crackles if I'm thinking about pneumothorax or pneumonia. If the heart sounds are muffled and the JVP is up, I need to think about fusion. And I guess the real value of the examination in ACS is prognostication. I want to see if there's any signs of acute heart failure, so raised GVP or peripheral or pulmonary edema. I want to hear a mitral regurge murmur if I'm worried about pillory muscle rupture. Are they tachycardic or bradycardic? Are they hypotensive? Are they having ongoing pain? All of these things help me risk stratify how urgently cardiology need to intervene with these people. Um, what initial investigations would you do? Yeah, so the ECG is the first thing. The Heart Foundation has a set of clinical guidelines for the management of ACS. And one of the key recommendations, which has level 3C evidence, is that anyone with symptoms suggestive of ACS receives a 12-lead ECG interpreted by an ECG experienced clinician within 10 minutes of first clinical contact. This is actually also one of our assessed targets in Australia for ED standards. And the reason for this is that reperfusing a STEMI will dramatically alter the outcome. So it's vital that these patients receive their reperfusion as early as possible and then the initial troponin. I would use any other investigations mostly to exclude other differentials that I'm suspicious of, um, like doing a chest X-ray. You can see some features of aortic dissection on a chest X-ray, but it's certainly not enough to confirm or deny any clinical suspicion you might have had. And it's definitely not a sensitive screening test. Um, the main thing I would use the chest X-ray for in this guy is to exclude complications like heart failure. Um, if I was considering PE, then I would obviously use the Wells and Perk criteria and decide any investigations that I might need based on those. I am lucky enough to be quite familiar with bedside echo, so there are a few things that I would look for on that, like an effusion or regional wall motion abnormality, but I certainly wouldn't use it to diagnose ACS in the initial phase. Once I've got all the information I need, I'll risk stratify the patient for ACS. There's a number of tools that you can use to do this. The most common ones in use in Australian EDs are the TIMI score and the heart score. These are helpful because you can use them along with a high sensitivity troponin to discharge low risk chest pain patients earlier in their stay. So my next investigations will be based on the risk that I've decided for the patient. Um, the heart score is an acronym, so H is for history, E is for ECG, A is for age, R is for risk factors, and T is for troponin, nice and easy to remember. And um, you get one, zero, one or two points based on how suspicious each component is for ACS. So if you have a score of zero to three, your risk of major adverse cardiac event on discharge is 1.7%, and if you have a score of seven to 10, it's about 50%. Then obviously depends on your institution, the chest pain pathway that you have, the sensitivity of the troponin that you use and whether it fits into some form of accelerated diagnostic pathway using one of these risk stratification tools as to how many troponins you do and when you would do them. Okay, so say we've done a high sensitivity troponin on Mr. Smith. Um, this result comes back and his troponin is 75, which is positive. Um, so 
when you do this troponin, understand it's high sensitivity. So if it's negative, you can often rule out MI, um, but you can't rule in an MI if it's positive. Is that a correct understanding? Or? That is a correct understanding. So you can certainly rule out an MI after a series of negative high sensitivity troponins, but unless the patient's had pain for 12 hours, I certainly wouldn't put a lot of weight on one single troponin. Some institutions will use two troponins and calculate a delta gap, which is how much the troponin rises by. And some institutions will just do two troponins at set points and discharge the patient if they're both negative. In terms of like, you can't rule in an MI, that's definitely a correct understanding. Other things can cause a troponin rise. There's lots of cardiac things, so myocarditis, um, cardiomyopathy, heart failure, and then lots of non-cardiac things like renal failure and sepsis. So I certainly, and PE. So I certainly wouldn't just rule in an MI based on the troponin level, especially if they don't have any symptoms. So we've also done a 12 lead ECG on Mr. Smith. Um, can you talk us a bit through what we're looking for on the ECG changes in the acute stage? So I think having a systematic approach to ECGs is paramount so you don't miss anything. The system that I use is to look at rate, rhythm, axis, and then I go through the waveforms, so P waves, PR interval, QRS complexes, ST segments, QT interval, and the T waves. So the RCA supplies the AV node in about 80% of people, and if there's an inferior MI... You can go into any form of heart block because of that, including third degree heart block. So the rhythm and the rate are really important. And then as you go through the waveforms, you're firstly going to look for STEMI. And this starts at the QRS complex by looking for a new left bundle branch block. And then in the ST segments, we're going to see if we can fulfill STEMI criteria, which is either 1.5, 2 or 2.5 millimetres of ST elevation in V2 to V3, depending on your age and gender, or one millimetre of ST elevation everywhere else in two contiguous leads. And what I mean by that is that two leads that follow each other in a particular anatomical territory. So three and AVF are two contiguous leads and one and AVL are two contiguous leads. Always, always, always look at AVR. ST elevation there can mean left main occlusion or triple vessel disease. If you have antraceptal ST elevation, that correlates with LAD occlusion. Antrolateral is circumflex, inferior is RCA, and posterior can be circumflex or the PDA, which runs off the RCA. About 55% of patients with a non-STEMI will have an abnormality on their ECG that's consistent with ischemia. And then I'll always look at the ECG for clues that I'm missing an alternative diagnosis. So I'll look for signs of right heart strain if I'm thinking about PE, widespread ST elevation everywhere, which can be pericarditis, um, especially if there's PR elevation and AVR, or something like electrical alternans if I'm thinking about pericardial effusion. So we, we perform a 12-lead ECG on Mr. Smith and it shows ST segment elevation consistent with the criteria that you've discussed. What's the initial management for him? Yeah, so if you have access to a cath lab, the priority is going to be to activate that because it usually takes them about 45 minutes to an hour to get in. Time is muscle. Um, you want to have them in a resus bay and you want to have the defib pads on because they're actually really prone to arrhythmias and also complete heart blocks that might require transcutaneous pacing. In terms of the patient, the aim is to have them hemodynamically stable and pain-free. So if they have an inferior STEMI, you want to avoid nitrites and give a judicious small fluid bolus. But for STEMIs in other territories, you can use GTN spray or sublingual tablets, and then you want to use morphine, which actually has the added effect of being a coronary artery dilator. Um, most of the time, if they come by ambulance, they will have had 300 milligrams of dissolvable aspirin. But if they come in privately, you have to give it to them, give it to anyone who you're suspecting ACS in, and make sure that it's the dissolving form for bioavailability. 
And then every institution will have another antiplatelet of choice. So ticagrelor, sorry, with a loading dose of 180 milligrams is the most common and it is superior. But then other people use clopidogrel, 600 milligrams. They should have a bolus of 5,000 units of heparin, which here in WA our ambulance crew will generally give if they think it's a STEMI. Um, but if they've just presented, it's really important that they get that. And then the aim is obviously to get them to the cath lab. So if they come in with less than 60 minutes of pain, we've got 60 minutes to get them into the lab. And if it's been more than that, then we should get them in within 90 minutes. And if we can't do that, then we should be thrombolyzing. Okay, and if you don't get them to the cath lab in time to do the PCI, what, what can you do then? So we should be thrombolyzing and most institutions here will use tenecteplase. If you've got like a standard, you know, 80 kilo dude, then the dose is 50 milligrams. But other than that, it would be weight based um, and you would always proceed this with a bolus of heparin, which we've already given. So I've read that you can sometimes give nitrates and the acute management. Um, would you do that as well? Yeah. So like I said, it's really important to avoid it in an inferior STEMI because especially if the right ventricle is involved. Um, and we see that on the ECG. So if lead three, the ST elevation is more than lead two, then you've got to be really suspicious of that. Um, then they rely so much on the preload that you give them. So if you dilate them with a nitrate, then they don't get that preload and the heart just doesn't pump and they do really badly, especially they get hypotensive. So that's why a small fluid bolus can sometimes be really helpful in those people. Anyone else, absolutely go to town, use GTN spray. <laughs> Okay, so if Mr. Smith was having a non-STEMI, um, how would your management differ for him? Yeah, so it really depends on how he goes from a pain point of view. So it's still really important to keep him pain-free and stable. Uh, I want him cardiac monitored. Um, I would give him the same dual antiplatelets, so aspirin 300 milligrams and ticagrelor 180 milligrams. And if he's not going to the cath lab, and by that I mean he's stable and pain-free, then I would give him Clexane, one milligram per kilogram. But if he's got any signs of ongoing pain or any ongoing ECG changes of any kind, so even just T-wave inversion that's dynamic, I'll be discussing him with cardiology for early PCI. And in that case, I would give him heparin, 5,000 units instead of Clexane. PCI can be used for both a STEMI and a non-STEMI management. Absolutely, yeah. So we've managed Mr. Smith really well in the emergency department. He's had his PCI, he's doing great. What would be your long-term management for him um, and secondary prevention? Yeah, I'll be honest, long-term management and secondary prevention are definitely the top two definitions for what is outside my scope of practice. <laughs> um, the mainstays of therapy, I guess, would be lifestyle modifications. So taking aspirin 100 milligrams a day, stop smoking, um, regular exercise. They're probably the most important things that we know actually make a difference to long-term outcome. Um, patients might be on another antiplatelet, usually ticagrelor, or um, sometimes prasugrel or clopidogrel. Um, and the duration of this is usually based on whether they have a stent and what type of stent it is, so if it's drug eluding or not. Um, after a time, especially in the elderly, we will try and rationalise dual antiplatelets with their bleeding risk and their falls risk um, to make sure that they don't have a fall resulting in an intracranial bleed or something like that. Um, most people usually be started on a statin. It's got a number needed to treat of 20 to 30 to prevent one coronary event over five years. So, um, And then beta blockers will be started if there's any evidence of LV dysfunction because they help with LV remodeling as well. And then if patients have heart failure or LV dysfunction, diabetes, coexistent hypertension, they'll usually be started on an ACE inhibitor as well. So someone like Mr. Smith comes in and he's having a STEMI. What are actually the consequences or complications of someone having myocardial infarction? Yeah, so if they come to me... With the initial presentation of pain, my main worries would be arrhythmia, heart block, 
acute heart failure or cardiogenic shock. All of these can lead pretty promptly to death in the ED or even pre-hospital. Um, other sinister early complications would include myocardial rupture, so either the free wall or as a VSD, uh, mitral regurg from papillary muscle rupture. These things are rare, obviously, and generally only occur with really late presenters from an anterior MI, so people who have had their chest pain for a couple of days. Um, in terms of late complications of MI, we can see dressless syndrome, which is a pericarditis or pericardial effusion following an MI. And this can happen any time between a week to several months later. An anterior MI can evolve into an LV aneurysm, and the incidence of that is about 5 to 10%. Um, it's important to recognise that because of the risk of thrombus formation. Um, patients can then get instant stenosis, and the most susceptible time for that is about 3 to 12 months after the initial stent. So if you have recurrent MIs, um, you can end up with ischemic cardiomyopathy, which is a form of dilated cardiomyopathy as well. Obviously a pretty big topic to cover, but do you have any kind of key takeaways for medical students or things that at the medical student level you would expect them to know? Um, so mostly I think the key concepts are to remember that not everyone with an MI presents with chest pain. So always look for evidence of ACS in women, diabetics and elderly people who present with shortness of breath, or nausea or epigastric pain. And the other really important thing is to make sure that your patient's pain free. So as long as they're obviously not having an inferior STEMI treat, any sensation of tightness or discomfort as if it were pain and when you ask about the pain make sure that you clarify that you're also talking about discomfort and remember ongoing pain is ongoing damage so morphine gtn uh, i would add lastly that the ecg is everyone's job so make sure you know how to do it and if you think it's important do it when you see the patient you will make very good friends of your senior staff the patient and your nursing staff and this will result in a very happy life for you Thank you. I'll definitely make sure to brush up on my ECGs then. So Dr. Perham, thank you again for taking the time to be on our podcast and share your valuable knowledge and insights with us. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in to MedTalk. If you have any feedback or suggestions or would like to find more episodes and information about the podcast, please head to our website. Mm-hmm.